Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm grateful and honored to be in dialogue with Kirill Pfefferman. He is a senior lecturer in the Department of Jewish History at Ariel University. We are here today to discuss his new book, If We Had Wings, We Would Fly to You, A Soviet Jewish Family Faces Destruction, 1941 to 1942, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press, 2020. Kirill, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much, dear Ari, for for this kind introduction. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Um, What formative events in your life or previous lives uh, inspired your interest in this topic and inspired the scholar you would later become? Well, I was born in the Soviet Union uh, more than 50 years ago when it was still in a very good shape. Uh, I was born in Moscow. Uh, Russian is my mother tongue until today. And um, we, were, we were born into a, a, a good model totalitarian country, even though it was a uh, not completely totalitarian when I, I I lived there. It was less totalitarian than it used to be. Mm, at the age of 20, when the country was on the verge of collapse, I made Aliyah, immigrated uh, from the Soviet Union to Israel. Uh, and since then, I live in Israel. Uh, and my uh, academic uh, perspective is largely uh nurtured by by israel academic experience or western academic standpoint if you wish even though uh in very many respects uh i'm still an east european jew uh, with all that entails uh with the uh, as we said uh, a galut mentality uh, and uh, the, my interest uh, in, uh, in all these topics uh, revolving about the Soviet Union and Russian Jewish experience definitely stems from my uh, coming from there. What are the primary themes in this book? What argument does your book advance? What story does your book tell? It's a story uh, about one family, if you wish, an average Jewish family. Uh, that found itself uh, in a relatively good place by the Soviet standards uh, uh, on the verge of the German invasion in 1941. Mm, It had a lot of time at its disposal to uh, think whether it it was worth uh, fleeing or not, and when and where, where to. And uh, it made some steps. uh, It... uh, Mm, elaborated on this issue in du- during almost one full year after the beginning of the war. Uh, there is a huge correspondence. All of it is preserved in the archive, uh, which tells us a lot about their deliberate deliberations. Mm, and uh, in this correspondence, we see 
you know, all angles, uh, you know, you know what people think thought about at that time, uh, you know, what people, what were they afraid of? Uh, what could they say? What could they only hint at? Uh, and um, this is a great uh, picture, year-long picture, if you wish, a, we, a f- film written in letters uh, of the atmosphere, the gloomy atmosphere of that time, because, you know, it was not a peaceful time. The German armies were, uh, were, were, were coming closer and closer. And the big issue what uh, it would bring to Jews if and when the German scar was hovering over this uh, conversation, year-long conversation. Uh, and of course, in my book, uh, I provide a larger perspective to let readers understand what was the atmosphere, what was the general setting, not necessarily of the, this big war, this big clash, but specifically in this, uh, if you wish, God-forsaken sector of the war, southern sector of the thousands along uh, front line uh, of the Soviet in the Soviet German war, mm, and uh, this is a very touching story because uh, there is no happy ending, mm, but it is very real because it, in a huge majority of cases there was no happy ending. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? It was my my luck whether while working on my doctoral dissertation, I came across uh, accidentally in Yad Vashem archives uh, uh, this uh, this uh, very uh, interesting uh, uh, new collection, new in the sense that no one has ever has discovered it before me. It's a collection of letters written by several members of this family. Uh, and uh, at that time, I decided not to uh, incorporate it in my first book on the Holocaust in the Crimea and the North Caucasus because I thought uh, it uh, it could be research in its own right. Mm, and uh, the idea was, in contrast to the first book, is to see, to present the situation of the Holocaust uh, in this region from below. Uh, we, from the perspective of an average uh, little man of Jewish nationality, uh, how he, he could view it. Uh, I don't say that everyone viewed the situation through this lens, uh, but in my opinion, it was quite representative. Uh, and uh, this, is, of course, uh, it is a combination of the, what is called history from below and the history from above. But mainly the focus is on personal recollections, how ordinary, ordinary Jews view it. And it's a very, as I would say, I would like to reiterate, it is a very rare collection, very few uh, collections of letters uh, were, uh, preser- from that time were preserved because the, the, the pace of the German advance was so quick. And uh, especially such large collections, you know, people, these guys were able to correspond in, in the duration of full year and even more, and which makes this the entire story quite exceptional. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Mm, it is a story about how, about the art uh, to interpret uh, conflicting messages of propaganda 
uh, of the ability to read between the lines, uh, to write what can be written and to omit what cannot be written because of censorship. Uh, and uh, Soviet Union was, of course, very well known for its strict censorship, but during the war it became even stricter. And everyone knew it. Uh, this specific family, who is at the center of my story, uh, the, some of their members were persecuted by the Soviets uh, before the war. So they knew very well what it was about, about the long hand of the Soviet regime. So in many respects, I would say what makes this story unusual, it is uh, the story of the German-inspired and German-made Holocaust of the Jews, uh, set against the background of the equally brutal Soviet regime. Uh, which was, of course, uh, uh, which uh, enabled the situation where, where, when uh, masses of Jews were able to escape. But at the same time, it was also responsible for the fact that other Jews were unable to escape. Mm -hmm. And it is a complex situation that is definitely, in my humble opinion, worth, uh, was, you know, warrants a discussion. How does your book contribute to the study of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union? Mm, I hope that uh, it will provide uh, new uh, insights uh, uh, into what I said, history from below, uh, and the um, and we will bet, be able to better understand uh, the odds. Uh, of survival uh, for, for, for Soviet Jews and how much depended on the Germans. And even though I don't want to draw parallels, how much depended on the Soviets. Uh, and it was uh, by any account, an equally brutal and uh, relentless regime. And uh, which is quite, well, by the way, one of the reasons why it survived this attack. But to live under this rule for a you know uh, ordinary person, ordinary Jew, uh, was a huge challenge, which until now, in my humble opinion, uh, was not duly uh, discussed by scholars. How was modern-day Kazakhstan impacted by the Holocaust? Can you describe the importance of Alma-Ata, or today Almaty, Kazakhstan? In your book's narrative, what may be learned from your book about Kazakhstan's experience during World War II? It was, of course, during the war, uh, uh, one of the Soviet republics. Uh, not the best, by the way, uh, one in terms of quality of life. Uh, and it, star it suffered a lot uh, from starvation in the 1930s, uh, uh, only part uh, with Ukraine, uh, to the best of my understanding. And but uh, um, it also turned out into one of the destinations uh, of the or passages of Jewish uh, uh, escape. Not not necessarily not only Jewish, but also Jewish of Jewish escape during the Second World War. And masses of Jews were talking about many thousands who went through Kazakhstan or got stuck there. Few people wanted to really stay there because the food conditions were. were very problematic, to put it mildly. Uh, 
and in this sense, uh, neighboring uh, Uzbekistan fared much better. And now, uh, but people were hospitable, very many local people were hospitable or hospitable enough, uh, even though they themselves didn't have uh, the, the enough food stock for, for their own families. And it was a factor that, you know, that led uh, quite a significant number of newcomers to survive, at least temporarily. Um on the whole, it was a very interesting place in many other respects because uh, Soviet Kazakhstan hosted a huge number of Soviet camps. The population was made up uh, of uh, local people, uh, local nomad population, Russians, uh, who were engineers or intellectuals in, in, in other positions, uh, but also about it, all this huge camp industry uh, with uh, guards, uh, and uh, who, who service this, you know, who were in charge of these camps, and you know their families, and people who used to to live in this region, uh, it, it used to be prisoners in this camp and were released until you know and had to live there because they couldn't move outside of the of this republic. Uh, so it was a very peculiar place uh, by the Soviet standards. I would say that uh, those who uh, were released from the from the camps. Uh, were, uh, apparently, they apparently had more compassion for the refugees, uh, unlike the guards uh, and their families so, who belong to an entirely different spread of the Soviet population. Uh, but uh, generally, of course, it was a very challenging place and extremely challenging time. Mm, today, you know, they do have a, a, their own policy of commemoration, this independent Kazakhstan, and they, they do invest some resources in uh, uh, remembering uh, the story of their own effort in uh, saving, rescuing uh, refugees, Jewish and non-Jewish ones. And generally speaking, I would say it is... Uh, mm, a good place, uh, say a fertile ground to engage in uh, Holocaust remembrance. What new evidence and information does your book provide regarding the conduct of the Einsatzgruppe in general and in the Soviet Union in particular? Mm, the Einsatzgruppe D or Operative Group D uh, was deployed in the North Caucasus uh, and in the city of Rostov, which is the center of my story, uh, in 40, 42 and even previously in 41. Most of my story is, of course, is revolving about uh, around 42. Um, so it was a huge territory, and this German Union was uh, terribly understaffed to engage in what it usually in, uh, engaged previously, that is, uh, in they called it uh, pacifying the territory. So in order to cope with this very challenging task, they had to rely on local people and to recruit a significant number of local people, not uh, only as auxiliary forces, but also, you know, as, as full-fledged killers was. Uh, of course, guided by the Germans, but you know those they were, those were local people. Uh, so in some cases, it did work uh, work uh, well for the Germans. That is, the, the local population collaborated. Uh, in other cases, they collaborated, if you wish, pro forma. 
uh, and um, the Germans, uh, I was, I think, even didn't even realize uh, that uh, they, you know, it was, it was, you know, it it was not what they were looking for. Um, so, in some places, uh, it uh, left some opportunities for rescue for for the Jews, like. Uh, um, Mm, Muslim-dominated areas where there were very few German troops stationed there. In other areas, like Cossacks areas, it was uh, the Jews had had fewer chances to survive because the population was uh, uh, extremely anti-Soviet and by default anti-Jewish, and they didn't even need uh, German encouragement uh, to. Uh, to finish to finish off the remaining Jews. So and this is the story. I would say in many respects it is more local story than the German story. What does your book's title mean? No, oh, it's a it's a very good question. Thank you, Art. Mm, this is the story about uh, one family that, uh, as I said, contemplated. Uh, moving out of this region, which was definitely threatened from even summer 1941. It contemplated and uh, thought and thought it over for the, for, for, for the for, for very many months. They definitely wanted to be, uh, to be as far as possible from this region. Uh, but uh, mm, the difficulties involved in evacuation and the family member that was stationed in Almata wrote them extensively. Well, fortunately, we don't have these letters, but we do have answers to these letters, uh, you know, in these uh, written by the Rostov Brush and the family. So they were uh, shocked by the appalling accounts uh, of his experience in Almaty in Kazakhstan. Apparently, he didn't fare that you know he didn't fare that well uh, during his evacuation, and that was uh, one of the major factors that uh, dissuaded them from moving uh, to from moving eastwards from evacuating. Still, they wanted to get out as far as possible, and that's what they meant by saying, if we had wings, so we would come to you. That means that if it would be possible to, to you know, to get there, you know, in a second, without experiencing all this hardship, uh, we would certainly do it. But otherwise, it is also explicitly written in, in several letters, uh, to stay there and to await what may come under German rule, is more or less tantamount to to, uh, to perishing somewhere in the Soviet hinterland during the evacuation. And of course, another thing is that, of course, they were far from being sure uh, that the Germans would not be able to subdue, to, 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 to subdue the Soviet Union and to get even to the Central Asia. So, for you know, it it is it is made itself felt in in, in several letters, despite Soviet censorship. They say they ask him, you know, what does it matter that if you are here or we are there, they they, they would come eventually. They would come in every place, and at that time, especially in summer fall, nineteen forty one. We should uh, we, we can understand it better that you know that by that time, if we take into account that by that time the German army 
uh, the Wehrmacht, uh, did not su suffer a single defeat. It looked unstoppable, entirely unstoppable. They won all the battles against the French, against the Brits, against the Soviet. And it, you know, it looked like, you know, that, you know, uh, this uh, God himself uh, fought on their side. Uh, and, you know, it's the, the very many people were, not only this specific family, but across Europe, were paralyzed by fear, if you wish, by irrational fear. It, you know, was for, for it, this was entirely incomprehensible because, you know, because if we, uh, you know, compare military force both both sizes, you know, it, you, we can't say that, you know, the Germans had a, a, a decisive advantage. No, but still they, they advanced on every front. They couldn't be stopped until until the late November 41. Uh, but, you know, b before it, pe people were really paralyzed with fear. And, you know, the family where I'm talking about was no exception to this trend. How does your book advance our understanding of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin? Mm. Well, we well know that it was a tough country. Uh, it was a tough country, especially towards its own citizens. Uh, and it didn't spare people uh, in its internal uh, wars and also in its external wars. Uh, of course, this country was uh, bent on winning the war, surviving in 41-42, uh, at any cost. Uh, the lives of uh, any citizen, including its Jewish uh, uh, um, subjects, uh, you know, you know, very relevant to the Soviet leader, uh, and well, as I said, I think this is one of the reasons of his success uh, in that war. Uh, and the Soviets were ready to sacrifice as many people as it as it took to win the war. Not many countries could could afford to do it. Uh, now, I would say, in terms of uh, brutality and relentlessness, they were, of course, uh, on a par with the Germans. Uh, and I would say some say would probably even excel and outdid the Germans, uh, with the exception, of course, of the Jewish topic, where the Germans uh, outdid anyone else. Uh, now, uh, I would say it was... Uh, a very difficult country to understand, um, uh, which uh, never, almost never, said the truth about the goings on uh, uh, the uh, the war, and even people well versed in the uh, intricacies of the Soviet policies, in the uh, who possess skills uh, for for decades. Uh, they, they were quite for the case uh, to read between the lines and to get all these messages, which were never written, uh, uh, but should have been understood. Uh, but anyone with a, with a, who wanted to survive, even these people had had a remarkable difficulty to understand what was at stake, and eventually they failed. Uh, they tried to get all these messages. They were very, very cautious, more cautious than an average Soviet family, because, as I said, one of their family members were, uh, up, you know, belonged to those those outcasts who were oppressed in the nineteen twenties and thirties. So the family learned to be very, very cautious, uh, and still they wanted to get uh, a real information, and they didn't get it. In my book, I 
juxtapose Soviet messages that were published in the official newspaper available to this family in this city with the messages uh, on on the uh, course of the war in this region, in the in the North Caucasus, published in the New York in the Washington Post, the New York Times. No, I don't say that you know these were the ideal sources of information. They had their own uh, limitations, uh, but still, uh, you know the uh, discrepancy in the level of in, in in the coverage is striking, and be, and this information was unavailable to the family. And uh, I think that uh, were it available, the family could uh, act differently. Uh, so that's this is the story. How did Joseph Stalin res- respond or perceive the German atrocities against Jews in the Soviet Union? What was his attitude toward the Nazi atrocities against Jews in the USSR? Well, if we are talking about Joseph Stalin during the war, it is one thing. And I would say, of course, it is, it is well known, he's no, he was not a big fan of Jews. Uh, but those Jews who were exterminated by the Germans in his country were his citizens. And this was of paramount importance to him because his citizens were killed, if you wish, without his order by foreign invaders. And it was a blatant violation of international law. And if necessary, this country uh, could recall you know, international law and could do this. You know, and uh, for them, for, 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 for Stalin, I would say it was far less important that they were Jews and they were killed because of their big Jews. But what mattered most, what counted most, was the fact that they were Soviet citizens. And the extermination of a city of citizens of another country, you know, controlled by you is of course was a violation of the rules of the war. And uh, he did capitalize on it, and the Soviets were able to present their point of view to Western allies and uh, eventually to convince them that the Germans, uh, the German regime was criminal one and uh, deserves to be to be to be entirely completely replaced uh, after the, the defeat. Um, but uh, I would say not only was he not interested in highlighting the Jewish uh, uh, catastrophe, uh, he, I would say for inter- for domestic reasons, he was even interested to downplay it uh, because uh, after all, what did the German propaganda say every day? That this was a Jewish war, that the Jews uh, waged this war they were the only one interested in uh, letting it uh, continue. Uh, and of course, there is a nexus between the Jews and the Bolsheviks, the so-called Judeo-Bolshevism. And the, suppose the Soviets were in no way interested in maintaining this sort of conversation by saying that, you know, we do admit that, you know, Jews were, were, were killed, apparently, you know, and, and, and or Jews were killed or the communists were killed. It was another group persecuted by the Germans uh, in the occupied territory because in many ways it did strengthen German position that they had nothing to, you know, against ordinary Russians, they were fighting a war only against the Jews and Bolsheviks. So for very for domestic reasons, for domestic consumptions, the Soviets and Stalin especially uh, realized it pretty well and were not interested in 
uh, even mentioning it too often, let alone highlighting the specific Jewish dimension of the of the of the of, the, of these atrocities. I would say uh, uh, during the war, as far as I understand, it had less to do with the Stalin's own uh, predilections, or put it uh, straight, uh, his animosity towards Jews. It was it had to do about uh, uh, the right way to confront Nazi propaganda. How did neighboring Turkey perceive the events you describe in this book? How did Turkish newspapers such as Vakit, Ali Sabah, and Vatan perceive the cruelties taking place? To the extent of your knowledge, can you comment on Turkish foreign policy vis-a-vis the Nazi-Soviet conflict in the Caucasus and vis-a-vis the Holocaust in the Caucasus region. Yes, I studied this topic, even though it is not uh, one of the concerns of the book we discussed. Mm, Turkey found itself in an impossible uh, position. It, you know, jo- you know, it had, uh, you know, it, it, Germany was its neighbor uh, by virtue of occupying Greece. Uh, and the Soviet Union was also its neighbor uh, it had common borders in the Caucasus, uh, uh, and it says, and uh, in, in other regions, you know, it's from the south, uh, Turkey borders uh, on Iraq, which was at that time dominated by Britain, uh, and uh, so it was uh, the 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 engaged policy of neutrality, and in, in many respects, they didn't have much choice. Uh, they pursued a very clever policy of, uh, um, I would say, in behind closed doors, uh, Turkish diplomats uh, said to foreign diplomats what they wanted to hear. And But uh, they also maintained a policy of strict neutrality. Uh, the entire country was, I would say, mobilized uh, in maintaining their policy. And uh, local newspapers, including those that you maintained, were operating in you know under strict censorship. You can hardly find there anything, anything that uh, um, uh, diverted from the official line. And the official line was strict neutrality. Only reports of the on the course of the war. However, behind, as I said, the, the interesting things uh, did happen. Uh, did take place behind the closed wars. And um, we uh, don't have much information about what was said at that meeting, with the one notable exception. Uh, the conversations that the Turkish diplomats, including highest ranking diplomats like uh, Prime Minister, uh, had with the German diplomats, mainly with the German ambassador from Papen, who was the uh, very important figure in Nazi leadership. I was in German leadership, he was not a Nazi. He was, uh, just to give you an example, he uh, he was uh, a German counselor uh, right before Hitler. Uh, and um, his appointment to, to Turkey, to be a German ambassador to Turkey, uh, definitely uh, is a testimony to the importance that Nazi Germany attached to Turkey in this war. Now, in these conversations, the, Turk, uh, the Turkish leaders uh, openly uh, discussed the German advance in the southern parts of the Soviet Union, where quite a number of uh, uh, ethnic Turks or Turkic people uh, were living. Mm, and they were ethnically, or if you wish, racially and religiously very close to Turks. 
and uh, the Turkish leadership uh, did feel uh, a high extent of um, affinity towards these people. This was, if you wish, a part of the enlarged family for them. Uh, and uh, they did express, according it, as I will say something about the documents, they did say openly behind the closed doors, a closed doors uh, that once uh, Germany succeeds in taking uh, in, in in taking over the entire region, uh, it Turkey hopes that you know that it will be given a foothold in maintaining this region culturally. Uh, probably, probably economically, and the Germans never said no. By the way, they they did envisage this possibility that you know because of the importance of Turkey of its ability to contribute to pacify this region. And now, uh, and this what you know where, where do this where do we have this information? Because Turkish archives, uh, uh, this part of uh, Turkish archives are entirely uh, they are entirely closed for researchers, even for uh, Turkish researchers, let alone foreigners. And now, because when such a diplomatic conversation did take place, it was uh, there was a protocol written by both sides by the Turks, and we have nothing uh, on it, and by the Germans. And the German reports were sent to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and its archive was after the war taken over by the Soviets, which were, of course, only happy to publish these reports immediately after the war, when their the own uh, relations with the talks deteriorated. So it was for them, it was a, to- a story of collusion between the talks and the Germans. Uh, but the documents look pretty authentic, uh, and um, I do use them. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it doesn't provide us uh, an interesting insight into the, you know, uh, thoughts uh, of the inner circle of uh, Turkish decision makers. What does your book teach us about women's experiences during the Holocaust? Mm, it is a big uh, and permanently, uh, uh, I would say, this topic is on the rise all the time uh, in recent times. And my story is very much about the gender role, if you wish, about the role of the women, uh, because uh, the population, the Jewish population in this specific region, where they were talking about those who used to live there from time immemorial, uh, over several decades, of course, not time immemorial, or refugees who flocked into this region because it was one of the routes of for them to escape from Ukraine. Ukraine and other threatened regions, uh, this uh, refugee population was mainly made up of women. Women, uh, women actually turned out into the into the heads of the families, uh, because uh, why did it happen? Because men were enlisted in the army, into the army, uh, and um, so women had sometimes for the first time in their life uh, lives uh, uh, had to make big decisions. For example, to flee or not to flee. Uh, this was also the story of the family I'm describing in my in my in my book. Uh, there was probably one two men, uh, you know, adults, you know, who were so big enough to make independent decisions. Uh, all other uh, protagonists in my book are women, uh, and uh, this was a story of a say characteristic for the entire Soviet population and also you know of Jews. 
you know, women had, you know, had had no choice but to make decisions. Some of them failed to make big decisions, or let's say they decided not to decide anything, instead and overwhelmingly perished with their families. Others were, um, had some foresight and escaped. Uh, but it was in very many uh, respects a female story. What does your book teach us about the Holocaust in the Rostov region? What new evidence does your book convey? Can you elaborate for us and illuminate us? Yes. It was, it was a very interesting, I would say, unique story uh, in the Holocaust history because uh, uh, the city was captured by, by the Wehrmacht twice. First, it took place uh, in November forty-one. Uh, it lasted only one week, and surprise, there was no Holocaust. You know why did why why you know why was there no Holocaust? It's not because the Germans did not want to to kill all the all the Jews, but the the Soviets were all too near. The city was uh, shelled all the time by the Soviet artillery, and. These uh, uh, mobile uh, killing uh, units, uh, uh, you know, as the science group, simply didn't, uh, you know, were afraid to move around the city in search of Jews. Uh, these Jews, of course, at their own volition, were in no way interested to to move around the city and to go to this uh, to 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 registration points. Uh, so the decrease. Uh, a registration decree, the decree to to where they are, the um, distinctive armband were issued, but they were not observed, uh, and the extermination order was not even uh, issued. And for very many Jews uh, resident in Rostov at the time, it was, uh, if you wish, a story of the Soviet propaganda bluff. The Soviet propaganda. What after, after all? What did it claim? The, the Germans were banned on killing all the Jews. And here, this you see here is the proof. The Germans were here, and they did do it. They did kill several, you know, quite a number of Soviet civilians, including Jews, but not because they were Jews, but because, you know, these were, you know, these were unfortunate people who were killed uh, as a part of the so-called retaliation, you know, retaliation against the Soviet forces. Um, now, and the Holocaust did not take place. So it looked like for them, it looked like not all the Soviet Jews were, were pro-Soviet or believed blindly the Soviet propaganda. For them, it was a story, you know, one more proof, if they needed one more proof, uh, that you know the Soviet propaganda cannot be believed at all. Uh, and uh, quite a number of them, you know, took it so seriously that they remained consciously in the city, even though they could have. Uh, uh, have fled it uh, in the second part, or in the first part of 41, 42. Uh, so this is, a, a, in 42, of course, the Germans uh, accomplished what they didn't succeed in doing in 41 and kill all the Jews who, who they, they managed to find there. Uh, and But, you know, it was a, a different story. Uh, it was also a story about uh, uh, the mm, mm, unfortunate, very unfortunate story of the unfortunate Jews who were uh, frequently seized 
by the second wave of the German advance. Uh, quite a number of uh, those unfortunate Jews were lucky enough to escape the first wave of the German attack in 41. It was a huge luck, by the way, uh, because the German armies advanced so rapidly. But they were spared by the second by the second German offensive in 42, which was no less rapid, and came to them entirely as a surprise. There was, one, by the way, another group uh, which were a very fortunate people to survive uh, a German siege of Leningrad uh, in very cruel winter of 41-42, uh, uh, in the conditions of starvation. Mm, they were evacuated by the Soviets to the North Caucasus, where the food situation was by far better. Uh, they felt much better. They could eat, you know, good food by, by the Soviet standards, of course. And then, by the way, you know, the, to me, it's, it's, it is, it is, it would say, it is an extreme degree of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, you know, of uh, having no luck. Because to be able to survive the Soviet, the German siege of Leningrad and to perish in in the in the, in, the, in another German advance, it's you know it's it's terrible, uh, and um, but this was a, indeed a story. You know, this was a, as we know now. People didn't know at that time. It was a, actually the second and the last big German uh, offensive at that war. Uh, there were no more such uh, German breakthroughs in 43 and later on. So in many respects, people, you know, perished uh, in the very, uh, you know, in the very last moment, you know, they could still, they had to wait out several more months uh, and, you know, they, you know, they, then they could survive this war and the Holocaust. And, uh, but they, you know, were very unlucky. How did families in Rostov-on-Don receive information from outside, if at all? It is a story about, um, of course, about the, the Soviet information, Soviet information, uh, how uh, the government, more specifically local government, presented this information to the local population, uh, how it sifted it uh, to the point of, to the point that nothing serious about the development on the front were actually published. Uh, there was information at the same time on the German anti-Jewish atrocities, uh, but uh, it was really difficult to figure out that these atrocities took place everywhere and there was uh, a one uniformed policy behind these atrocities. Or it could be also interpreted as, you know, simply outbursts of German brutality. And now uh, another source of information available to and the inhabitants of Rostov, including the heroes of my story, were, was refugees. Quite a number of refugees refugees uh, escaped through Rostov. Some of them got stuck there uh, for a while, and they contacted local population, including Jews. They could tell them something. Uh, but, uh, you know, the... Mm, mm, the importance of this information, so this information was largely you know, available. The question is whether and to what extent uh, the, 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 my, the heroes of my story uh, were able to, uh, to get it. Uh, it was a risky story because it was not a, an occasional encounter between two people in the street uh, by the Soviet laws. Uh, if someone told someone else, 
that the situation at the front is terrible, that our army is in retreat, and the Germans would be here very quickly because they have, well, they have a very good have very good tanks. They, they cannot be stopped. You know where they are now. They are, they are 100 kilometers from here. You know, it's just you you you, you can hear shelling. Uh, and this inter- information would be very interpreted, and there were a huge number of cases when it was interpreted by the Soviets as a dissemination of uh, of uh, defeatism, uh, and uh, these crimes were punishable uh, by by Soviet laws. And you know, the newspapers uh, uh, published uh, you know stories every every you know, two days about you know someone who spread. Uh, these kind of rumors, and people were very much aware of it because, uh, because you know, how was how were these people who disseminated these rumors? How were they identified? Uh, somebody denounced them, uh, and so just imagine the situation when uh, Rostov Jews, for example, the heroes of my uh, my story, come across a Jewish family who look like refugees, probably don't speak perfect Russian because they come from uh, from uh, recently next Soviet areas. They speak more Yiddish than Russian. Uh, but the question is whether you want to contact these people because probably they, they, they will bring you this news which the, that the government deems uh, as defeatism uh, and with all, with all that entails. So it was, you know, it was... Uh, not a free exchange of opinion. It was a free exchange of opinion in a totalitarian country at war. How was Rostov impacted by the Russian Civil War? How were Rostov's Jews impacted? Uh, during the Russian Civil War, uh, this area uh, was dominated by the so-called whites, the enemies of the Bolsheviks, mm-hmm. uh, which a considerable part of uh, Cossacks uh, were known for for not being the you know the best friend of the Jews, and actually this uh, uh, Caucasian Cossacks committed quite a significant number of anti-Jewish atrocities uh, uh, in Ukraine when their units were deployed in Ukraine, and they are responsible for a huge number of the Jewish atrocities. Not necessarily the Cossacks, but the Cossacks uh, in particular are other white units made up of entirely. Uh, Russian people, you know, you know, committed other atrocities too. And now, uh, but in Rostov itself, like in the North Caucasus, uh, more generally, there were no pogroms. Uh, the white rule was more or less stable. Uh, the government, uh, you know, there was stability, and um, the Reds came, uh, you know. Only by the end of the this uh, Russian Civil War, uh, and there was some extent of instability, but instability, but still there were no pogroms. In contrast to very many other areas in the, in the in that war, uh, one more th- interesting thing about the Civil War and the Jews in the, in this region, um, a, apparently, uh, local Jews were uh, relatively well off by the standards of Russian Empire. Uh, and there are stories that they supported the white cause, uh, probably either they, because they detested the Reds, uh, who supported the poor, uh, they could eventually come to, you know, come to them and take their assets. Uh, 
uh, or probably they had no choice and in this brutal war they had no choice but to support the the, the regime that is in control of the of the area you are living in but one way or another it is the only case in probably one of the very few cases in the Russian civil war war when the Jews lent significant support to the enemies of the red to the enemies of the Bolsheviks. Uh, and of course, the, the, as always, uh, the Soviet did not forget it. And, uh, it, you know, it had very many uh, shortcomings, the Soviet regime, but it did have a very good memory. Uh, and uh, all these uh, guys, Jews and non-Jews, who were supportive of the white regime were eventually uh, identified and punished. Uh, and unless, of course, they were lucky enough to escape uh, to escape abroad with the with the, with the retreated whites. So, in many, in very many respects, uh, to to sum up, uh, the North Caucasus and Rostov, especially, uh, was a was an island of stability uh, at the time when there was no stability at all in the in the during the civil war in, the, in this region. What was Rostov like during the time of Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson of Lubavitch's five years living in the city between 1915 and 1920? Well, part of the story begins in the, in the First World War, and the city hosts a, a significant number of Jewish refugees expelled from the Pale of Settlement. Uh, and uh, the city was uh, situated relatively far away from the front line, uh, so it didn't know all these privations, characteristics for, for the cities close to the front line, but still the country was at war. Um, it uh, had a relatively prosperous Jewish community, again, by the standards of the Russian Empire at war. Uh, and the arrival of such a prominent rabbi of course, significantly strengthened the religious component of the Rostov Jewry. Um, I would say that, uh, but you know, the city was, as I said, having said all that, we should remember that the um, Russian Jewry, it was already very poor by the standards of world Jewry, but the uh, First World War uh, delivered it a devastating blow. You know, people were forcefully relocated from the Pale of Settlement and uh, this, uh, you know, were forced to flee. Uh, and uh, very often with no possessions at all, you know, sometimes they were, they were, they were beaten, uh, the women were raped, and you know, there are terrible stories which are largely forgotten because of the next wave of waves of atrocities that would happen in the same region uh, later on. Uh, but uh, um, uh, Rostov Jewry uh, was very generous to the best of our knowledge. It did. Uh, it was really uh, mobilized uh, to help uh, their brethren uh, from 1915 and later on. In 19, it looked terrible in 1915. No one uh, could even realize that it would become much worse uh, in the next years. Uh, but as I said, by the standards of this unstable region, unstable region, Rostov was still a relatively good place to live in. In other words, there were no pogroms. Uh, even though the, uh, the rulers, the white rulers, the Cossack rulers, were, uh, were quite hostile to, towards Jews, this should be said uh, cl clearly. 
uh, but still even you know it, it is it could give us a, an additional uh, it provided with additional dimension uh, you know for for, for to look at, at the situation from a specifically jewish standpoint sometimes it is better off to live under stable uh, and a regime hostile towards jews than to live uh, in the uh, in the conditions of anarchy when there is no rule at all. What was the Molot publication? Can you in, com, can you compare and contrast the Molot newspaper's coverage of atrocities against Jews with Izvestia's coverage? Yes. Molot was the local newspaper, the major new local newspaper, which uh, formerly belonged to the party uh, and the civil administration of the city of Rostov. Uh, and uh, because um, the central newspapers uh, arrived in the city quite late, and not always, you know, it was very often it was the only uh, venue of information available for local inhabitants. Hence, the importance of this newspaper uh, for for the heroes of my book and all other people who lived in Rostov, including Jews. Uh, this uh, newspaper, even though formally and informally it was part of the huge Soviet propaganda machine, it very much depended on what the local party bosses uh, and par- local party, which was effectively in control of the, of the on the on the content, what they said, what they said should be written, what they said should not be written. Another, uh, you know, a factor that with another. Uh, institution with a heavy impact on the content of what was published, or to, to put it uh, differently, what was not published was uh, census. The, the Soviet censorship, as I said, was very heavy, and it became considerably heavier during the war. And in Rostov, uh, it was probably especially heavy, to the point that the local party leadership complained to Moscow that the census uh, do not uh, permit publications of really important news that the party approved. Uh, and the local population was uh, sometimes, uh, you know, entirely unaware of what is going on. Or, for example, why suddenly out of the blue uh, they, they heard shelling uh, or, or bombardments here and there. And uh, there were quite a number of... Uh, uh, accidents, for example, it was sometimes described in the books, in, the, in my book, where it is written in one, in one of the letters, you know, for example, that the, the family spent a uh, whole evening uh, in a shelter because there was German bombardment, and there was nothing written about it uh, in the local newspaper for the duration of the entire month, where there were very heavy bombardments. You can just imagine what, uh, you know, what kind of trust local people had towards this newspaper. If, you know, the most important event, you know, exceptional event was not reported in this newspaper at all, even though everyone witnessed it. Uh, because you know the entire city was bombarded uh, almost every day, and uh, uh, so mm, in in other cases, by uh, however, the newspaper was quite open about uh, publishing reports on German anti-Jewish atrocities, as I said. So, but you know, when we try to understand what lo- really people, local people, really 
thought about use the newspaper, provided they read it, provided they viewed it as a relatively trustworthy, trustworthy source of information. It's a big question because, you know, try to think, you know, whether I should read a book which doesn't report most important event that takes place here in my place. Uh, and why should I uh, uh, trust uh, other reports published in the very news, uh, the very same newspaper? Probably everything else. What it, it publishes on anti-Jewish atrocities is nothing but a Soviet propaganda. So it was a very tricky situation, and in many respects, if you wish, the Soviet propaganda, at least Soviet censorship, outsmarted itself. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, to the detriment of the local Jews, especially. I interviewed you previously regarding your book on the Holocaust in the Caucasus and Crimea. In what ways, if any, is this book interconnected with your previous scholarship? Mm, in some respects, it is a con continuation of what was written. Mm, I, I, I must say, in, this, in the first book, I didn't uh, touch Rostov region, didn't touch it at all because it was too different, too, or too complex, because there were two occupations in 41 and 42. And my story does, of course, uh, uh, engage with the Holocaust uh, in the North Caucasus, with the exception of this specific region. Because when I wrote my first book, I already uh, had in my had in mind that I one day I would write the second book dealing specifically with this Rostov region. So it is a story of the which is close adjacent, but it's not the same story. And of course, the, probably the uh, most important distinctive feature of the second book is that it is, as I said, it is a, a history from below, something which is largely absent from the first book because it focuses on the big, large history, you know, if you wish, wish the Holocaust as viewed from Berlin, even though, of course, it it, it has plenty of, uh, of you know, of uh, Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet stories like evacuation. Uh, but you know, they, I I think that this uh, the combination of these two stories, one uh, you know which presents a history from above, and the other that largely presents a history from below, uh, can give us a better understanding of uh, of uh, of the situation of the um, opportunities that were available or unavailable to to local Jews. After all, it is uh, not the story. At least this is how I see it. It's not the story of numbers. It is we should also see uh, people, faces behind these numbers, because otherwise, you know, it's too abstract. You know, it's I would say in terms of uh, for educational purposes, probably the second book uh, is even more important than the first one. What is your book's contribution to refugee studies? Mm, Jewish refugees in the Second World War is uh, is what say is. Uh, is is understudy topic. It is uh, uh, being researched now, uh, but uh, generally the problem that uh, um, prevents us from uh, from fully uh, analyzing exploring this topic is a lack of sources because uh, refugees, provided they were lucky to survive the war and the escape, uh, they didn't have strength to write uh, about what they, they went through. 
the the new life uh, somewhere in the Soviet hinterland. Uh, if we're talking about the evacuation in the Soviet Union or any place, uh, any um, any other place where they were lucky to to survive, the new um, play this new place. Uh, uh, involved new challenges which were sometimes very you know overwhelming for these people and they simply didn't have time and strength uh, to put it on paper and those hence the terrible lack of sources uh, for to describe such a uh, significant enterprise quite a number of people we I should say were, were lucky to survive during this war and to escape the Germans we are talking about uh, uh, up to two million uh, Soviet Jews. And we, if we add to them uh, other Jewish refugees who were lucky, for example, to escape Germany or other European countries uh, during the 30s, uh, it is uh, a big story in its own right, with uh, with the certainly which is certainly part of the big uh, big Holocaust story. Now back to my story uh, and its own contribution. I would say it is the story uh, that you should. Uh, Let's say, if I try to uh, draw a profile of a successful refugee, that is the one who uh, who, who who was able to survive, uh, it was the guy gifted with a foresight. He didn't live close enough to the Soviet-German borderline before the German invasion. Otherwise, even if he, if he was extremely smart, he had no time to escape. He had time to escape, uh, and if he lived far enough uh, from the border, it, it, it give, gave him some time. He was well informed how it is. It mainly depended on his own resourcefulness uh, of the German intentions. It was extremely difficult to 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 guess before the twenty second of June forty one what would be the the, the Germans would uh, uh, would engage in the extermination of Jews because they didn't do it before it. They simply didn't do it. The Germans were brutal. They were anti-Semites. Everyone knew it. But the distance from, between that and killing Jews is still is still sizable. Uh, now, so we're talking more about a person who preferred to take no risk, not to find out to what extent the Germans were, were anti-Semites. Uh, so he had some money. Because to escape, uh, to escape uh, anywhere, even in such a poor country as the Soviet Union, cost money. Uh, he had, he was also very well connected. Because uh, it's not, it's not enough to have money. You also have to find right people that could be bribed, uh, or which could help you to uh, arrange, you know, buy tickets officially. Uh, by the way, we don't we should lose uh, don't lose sight of the fact that the Soviet Union was a totalitarian country. To move from point A to point B, you need a permit. The government didn't let people move freely from point A to point B. It was a violation of very many laws. There were uh, agents, there were military uh, patrols everywhere. If you don't have a permit, it was you could be easily regarded as a spy with all that entailed, even if you had a family or you claimed you have a family to accompany. So it, it all depended on your resourcefulness. So you have a, a, a permit with a stamp. In the stamp, it should have been described that you are going exactly in the same destination that the train is going. 
otherwise you know the you know the surgeon will tell you know please get off and you know until your your you know a local nkvd official will look into your matter with all that entail and uh, these people were to be very very lucky to survive german bombardments because the germans uh, german uh, air forces bombarded trains uh, that carried everyone including evacuees even if there were was a red cross written on the and it was a red cross was indeed written on these trains for the german pilots it didn't matter so and somehow this uh, this jewish refugee had only to be lucky to uh, uh, to get to the right place in you know in terms of food conditions because the food conditions were far from being favorable all over the Soviet Union all the time, especially at war, uh, during the war. So he had to find himself in this good place by the Soviet standards and to to find a good job. You know, even if he had no connections in this new place, and uh, not to be robbed, not to be accused of, uh, you know, a huge number of violations. That, you know, you know, for example, moving illegally from point A to point B, uh, walking illegally, uh, profiteering, and all that stuff. And so, you know, it's because there is, we there's one of the. Um, the stories of these of uh, of survival, I would say, in the Soviet hinterland is a huge uh, death rate uh, because a, a significant number we are talking about many thousands died there from starvation, even if they uh, arrived uh, in uh, in the right place when there were no Germans, but there was also no food, and they were unable to to find a good job that provided them with them uh, with food coupons. So it was uh, a big gamble at that time, a very big gamble, and not everyone was lucky enough uh, to play it. You write the following. Yeah, you write the following on page nine. You, you write as follows: Finally, we should mention that the oppressive Soviet policies adversely affected the whole population of the North Caucasus, as they did the rest of the country. During the 1930s, some 42,000 Russian civilians were repressed quote-unquote, repressed to adopt the Soviet term, that is, either shot down or incarcerated in the Azov Chernomorsk territory, an administrative unit with the capital in Rostov-on-Don, which existed from 1934 to 1938. The Cossacks, the Bolsheviks' bitter enemies during the Civil War, suffered particularly as a result of these policies. It is suggested that these policies affected local Jews in a similar way to the rest of the population, but no worse. During the 1920s and 1930s, most members of the Ginsburg family continued to live in Rostov-on-Don. It seemed, seems that following their relocation to a considerably more Russian and less Jewish city than Odessa, Father Gedalia changed his name to Grigory, probably in order to improve his standing with his customers. But his wife kept her Jewish-sounding name, probably because she did not work outside their home. However, we cannot rule out that this behavior also reflected the different attitude of the husband and wife to assimilation. Presumably, they died in the 1920s or 1930s, but we did, do not know where, when or how they died, for the correspondence does not mention them even once. The only family member who was not living in Rostov-on-Don at the end of the 1930s was the youngest brother, Efim Ginsburg. The brother of the three aunts, he received almost every letter in this collection and managed to keep them in his possession during and after World War II. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? 
Well, it is uh, in many respects a classical story of uh, Jewish migration uh, from the so-called uh, former Pale of Settlement into more prosperous areas uh, in the 1920s and 30s, or in, is in the case uh, we, we are dealing with even previously when it was permitted uh, with some limitations in the Tsarist Empire. Mm, people moved, as Jews moved outside of the Pale of Settlement whenever uh, they could. And the movement from Odessa, you know, the Jewish city par excellence, uh, to another place in the Russian hinterland, Rostov is very close, but it was outside of the pale. Was a go, you know, it was a, a, a road uh, taken by many, many Jews uh, because of uh, probably in terms of uh, trade opportunities with the cities were on the same standing, but they were far less competition, inter-Jewish competition in Rostov because they were Father's Jews there, and for very many Jews it was a factor to to, to in, for for for, their, for for behind their decision to move into this city. Now, a story of a gradual assimilation of Jews into a Russian milieu or Russian-speaking milieu is of course, of course, is there is nothing new in this story. It is a classical Jewish story. It. Uh, Took place is taking place uh, all over Jewish uh, story or history, you know, depending on the setting. Uh, it is the part of, if you wish, uh, so-called upward mobility, uh, and uh, many Jews uh, try to find a balance between trying to integrate into this uh, higher society, if you wish, and maintaining their identity. We have these dilemmas until now uh, in very many countries all over the world. So the Soviet Union in this respect and the, this specific family in this respect with no exception to the to this trend. Mm, uh, even though there was no particular pressure on the part of the authorities to do it, the family did it uh, so at uh, their own volition. Um, now, uh, I would say for such a movement uh, from one city in south, uh, in the southern part of the Russian Empire to another city to the, in the southern part of the Russian Empire was not just such a big story for such a big deal uh, for, uh, because very many other families split because the more traditional part decided to stay, to stay in the so-called pale of, of settlement and a more mobile part of the family, if you wish, less traditional uh, wanted to move to, to to places which offered more opportunities for upward mobility. Uh, in this case, the entire family moved, uh, and for we can uh, surmise that presumably for them, uh, the need to uh, maintain uh, this family structure of, uh, mattered a lot. Uh, so the the entire family moved, and then they each of them tries to to preserve as I said you know you know part of the Jewish identity you know character you know that he wants uh, he thinks uh, is essential for him or for her um and uh, uh, regarding the Soviet repressions you know North Caucasus was it was not only the the it was I would say even 
was than many other regions uh, of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s because for the Soviets uh, it was a problematic region. They had to digest it somehow uh, because it was a region as we studied during our conversation today, hostile to the Soviets because it was controlled by the their enemies, by the whites. So long during the civil war, so from the Soviet perspective, it was populated by, by very many people who were alien to them, and these people should uh, should have been handled in the Soviet way. In this, you know, and the the um, some people were oppressed, other other were exiled uh, and um, oppressed. I mean, uh, killed. As is, uh, you know, there was a, a huge onslaught on all kinds of religions. Uh, and uh, just to give you an example, I don't remember whether uh, I mentioned it in my book, but uh, for example, uh, one of Rostov synagogues, uh, synagogue, you know, there were several uh, several synagogues in Rostov before the revolution, and after the, for the of course for the uh, the the Bolsheviks were bent on anti-religious crusade. So one of the uh, 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 Rostov synagogue synagogues were, was converted quite in line with the Soviet tradition with the with the with the building that you know that was was to symbolize uh, something opposite. Uh, you know, of of religion, something you know that should uh, should sound as you know as uh, almost as a joke, uh, and uh, for the, those people uh, 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 who used to believe in uh, in these uh, in these prejudices, so the synagogue was converted into a hospital for venereal diseases. Uh, to remind. The population, you know, what you know, what religion looks like, you know, what it what it resembles, uh, and it's the same story took place with all other religions. You know, in this sense, the Soviets uh, in the nineteen twenties and thirties were not anti-Semites. They didn't single out uh, single out Jews and Jewish religion, and everyone was singled out in this sense. So it was me uh, would probably even uh, the the area which was uh, particularly taken care of by, by the Soviet regime and the worst sense uh, for this term. Can you tell us about Volodya Meerovich and Tamara Meerovich? Why are they noteworthy? Uh, this is they belong uh, this is a younger branch of the family. Um and uh, the husband is a Soviet official. Uh, he he's a member of the party, which is an exception in my story. Non, uh, all other family members uh, have nothing to do with the party. Mm, he's a party member and not the high-ranking one, because if he were high-ranking one, he could be evacuated uh, by order. Uh, now he's married to to the to the lady, which is who is the, the part of the, the extended family. He himself is becoming part of this extended family, uh, and. Uh, mm, their own sub-story is part of the larger story of the book. And uh, because he is a party member, the party uh, forces him, orders him 
to probably he, I don't I, I'm not sure, but probably he does it at his own volition. Probably he's ordered to do so. But one way or another, he joins the so-called uh, extermination battalion, recruited from local people, except exceptionally trustworthy. Uh, those were people actually with no basic military training, uh, but they were, for, you know, they were asked to defend their city if the Germans approached, and the Germans did approach. Uh, so the, the, the wife uh, left the city with their child, and he's uh, extremely anxious about the fate of his husband because after he's taking part in inactive uh, inactive uh, combat uh, now and because he's the party member because he walks in one of the Rostov uh, plants if, which is once evacuated then it is brought back to the city uh, the family you know his wife and uh, and um, a child actually can't move can't afford to move, move very far away from him they and realize they should, they should stick to him. They should, you know, they should remain together. For them, it is even a, even a higher value than to uh, take care of themselves. And the unfortunate fate of this family is a part of this uh, desire to stick together. They apparently they could risk a flight at their own, on their own, uh, but they didn't do it. Uh, and he's the only part of the extended family who remained alive after the Holocaust in the in the North Caucasus because he was part of the Soviet military, uh, and uh, we know it from the from the letters. It is a unique source of information that he, after the city was liberated in January forty three, he returns to the city to find out what is what what happened to his family because he didn't know it. He did maintain some correspondence with them, but you know there was, of course, there was no correspondence under, uh, when the Germans were there, and he he learns what what took place to them. He you know it's a very a relatively rare thing to learn about for the Jews to learn about the fate of their relatives in real time, uh, because very many in very many cases people uh, were, uh, served in the army units deployed you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometers from the places where their relatives relatives lived. Uh, no, but he was uh, he, he was able to, to, get, to get this information in real time, and he decided to, to take his personal revenge on the Germans. He killed seven, several Germans, which he writes it uh, plainly in, in his letters, uh, which are preserved in this correspondence, and eventually he found his death because apparently his... Uh, his desire to to take revenge was so reckless he didn't uh, spare himself uh, and he he also he eventually he was eventually uh, killed in action so the entire family with the exception of this uh, person to whom all these letters were directed perished uh, in the war and in the holocaust can you tell us about anya and lisa ginsburg why are they noteworthy uh, this is a part you know those those are Sisters of the, uh, of the uh, whose brother is the only one who lives outside of the region to whom all these letters were directed. Uh, they are in their forties and fifties at the time of the war. Uh, they are um, very influential in this um, family circle of decision makers because they're adults and they know life, and um, they're extremely cautious. Extremely cautious by the Soviet family, by the Soviet standards, by this even for this family, 
and their impact uh, on you know they love they love their family you know beyond you know this is very strongly and of course all their motivation all their decisions are motivated all, the, all their suggestions are motivated by love they want to, to their family to survive at any cost they simply don't know where but their cautiousness uh uh, is um, detrimental for the entire family because they are very much afraid of uh, uh, making big moves. They are very conservative uh, in their um, decision-making. And apparently it looks like they are, in this family, it, it makes itself felt. It made itself felt they're more afraid of the Soviets, probably because of what they went through in the 1920s and 30s, because their own brother was was arrested. Uh, they're more afraid of the Soviets than of the Germans. And even though it is never spelled out explicitly in the, in the correspondence, it is felt. Uh, and it is felt, uh, and um, even though the, the letters are full of uh, pro-Soviet declarations, uh, but my reading of this declaration uh, is that they were largely written for census because it is it is uh, written as the first or the last sentence in the letter. Of course, the you know the, the first thing and the last thing the census uh, took notice of when they read such letters. Can you tell us more about Efim Ginsburg? Can you describe his personality and his character attributes? He is the one who survived because he didn't live there. He was the one uh, with the probably the most interesting story because he was a part of the uh, left non-Bolshevik uh, party before the revolution. Uh, and he was uh, a member of, uh, of that party. Uh, and uh, when the Soviets uh, occupied or seized the North Caucasus, uh, they eventually uh, came and arrested him. And he was uh, detained for years, to the best of our knowledge, because his name appears in this list of those uh, of the so-called oppressed people. But eventually, I would say, in contrast to very uh, many other people, unfortunate uh, people, he was lucky to not only to be released, but to be reinstated in some sort of uh, influential position. Uh, and uh, he um, manages to to function as if nothing happened. But we all know, we, we feel it, you know, the, the, you know that you know the shadow of what took place to uh, with him in 1920s and 30s is definitely hovering over him, over the entire family. It makes them by far more cautious. Uh, probably by the way, this was, even though I claim that the story is exceptional in my respect, because so many Soviet people went through it, their family members were arrested or oppressed Soviet powers. It was this makes the story less exceptional. You know, very many you know as the experience common for very many people. Uh, but this guy learned it uh, from their own experience. He knew what it meant, and um, even though you can hardly find anything uh, anti-Soviet in his uh, letters or letters directed to him, it is the it should have been felt. Uh, he's uh, mm, a major failure, as uh, he himself admitted. Uh, was his uh, uh, frankness in describing the horrors that he went through when he was evacuated 
partly the conditions he, he lived in were appalling, and he described them frankly. Uh, and this made such an expression, impression on his family members that he decided, as I said, that, you know, it doesn't really matter where they, they, they write it, you know, clearly and explicitly. They clearly, they, it doesn't really matter where we will die, here or there. Here we will simply have to endure less because this is a place where you, we, live, we live in. It's our hometown, you know, this is our apartment. And why should we endure such suffering as you do? So it was, of course, a huge mistake on his part. I think, you know, it's, uh, he, he realized it, but, you know, that it was, I would say, too, too candid in his description. And, uh, and probably he felt that he, uh, he bears some responsibility for um, bringing his family members uh, to make wrong decisions. As we end our dialogue today, can you tell us about where your time and attention went since completing this book? I, I, I still, uh, I'm still, you know, focusing on this region. And right now, I, I, I finished uh, an article on on this. Uh, I have almost finished an article on the first German occupation of this city and what it meant for Jews and non-Jews which was, this occupation was incomplete in very many respects, as I said here during the interview, uh, so we, which didn't bring any conclusive uh, proof to any site. Uh, and the, but the, 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 big, uh, the big topic I'm working on now is the Jews in, uh, in the Far East under Japanese rule, uh, to what extent uh, the Japanese were um, ready to welcome Jews. And, you know, one of the surprising conclusions uh, that at least uh, I and my colleague uh, uh, arrived uh, in our research is uh, with, uh, we, despite the fact that Japan was allied to Nazi Germany, despite it is uh, in great brutality that it applied all over the Far Eastern region and East Asia more generally, it was in the 1939, 14, 41, probably the only country ready to accept Jews. Even though this, the, the Jews would endure, you know, would you know, would find it difficult to to survive economically or, or because of you know, in a, for lack of food under Japanese rule at that time. And the, the Japanese, in my humble opinion, should be credited for that. They were ready to accept Jews, and it was so rare at that time that, you know, it is striking and we're going to deal uh, to, to try to explain it. As we close, I'd like to thank you for how eloquent, erudite, and generous you were with your responses. Thank you for your magnanimity in participating in our dialogue today. Thank you very much, Ari. Uh, as always, it's just pleasure to work with you and to, to answer to such uh, intelligent questions. Thank you. It has been my blessing to be in dialogue today with Dr. Kirill Pfefferman. He is a senior lecturer in the Department of Jewish History at Ariel University. We have been discussing his new book, If We Had Wings, We Would Fly to You, A Soviet Jewish Family Faces Destruction, 1941 to 1942, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press, 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Ari.